0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farooq and Chad Ball.
1: This week we were joined by trauma surgeon and podcaster Dr. Dennis Kim. Dr. Kim, among many other things, hosts the very successful and highly educational Trauma ICU Rounds podcast. We in Canada are extremely lucky to have him back on Canadian soil. And so on this episode, we talked to him about his experience moving back to Canada from a successful trauma career in the United States and coming here to, and collaborating to develop a trauma system in Victoria, British Columbia. We then delved into a masterclass on facial dehiscences with Dr. Kim ranging from closure techniques to prevent them from happening in the first place, to strategies for dealing with them when they happen. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining us in The Cold Steel. We really appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to join us on the show. It's it's a double pleasure to have such an esteemed uh, surgeon as well as a fellow podcaster on the show. So thank you again for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Drs. Farouk and Ball. It's truly a privilege and honor to be here with you guys. Uh, love the show. Uh, I know how much work and effort and time and planning it takes to to sort of host a hot podcast. And so I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, right back
1: at you. We've, we've, we're big fans of Trauma IC Rounds. Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training.
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Ontario. I was born and raised in Toronto. And uh, growing up, wasn't ever really too sure that I wanted to go into medicine, although my mom is a nurse and so heard a lot of stories from the hospitals and she worked with a lot of different surgeons. And as you can imagine, not all those stories were necessarily good. Uh, But after going through a few different career paths, ultimately decided on medicine and eventually surgery. And so ended up doing medical school at McMaster, followed by residency, as well as a critical care medicine fellowship at the University of Ottawa. And towards the end of my fellowship, I think one of the things I realized was that I hadn't really gotten a lot of intraoperative trauma management uh, experience or training. And so much like uh, Dr. Ball, uh, headed down to the US for a fellowship because That's what you do when you want to get operative trauma experience. You head down to the U.S. And so ended up at the University of California, San Diego for two years, uh, where I met my career mentor, Dr. Raul Combra. And uh, he had a big influence on my career. And I spent my first uh, 10 years uh, at Harbor UCLA in South Los Angeles before coming back to Canada.
0: Dennis, that's an awesome pathway and, and pedigree. Um, you know, and obviously in, in Canada and, and BC and in the West in general, we're so thrilled to have you back and, and call you our own. That that's wonderful. So you must've worked with, with a few uh, really good guys, hey? Eh? Like, uh, Alisa would have been down there and a, a bunch of great guys.
2: Oh, um, absolutely.
0: White, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a close friend to, to a number of us, Amir and myself as well. Such a good guy, uh, amongst many others. And, you know, it's, it's such a different environment in LA and in the US in particular, what brought you back to Canada? What was that driver for you?
2: Yeah, you know, when we went uh, down there, uh, we kind of went down with the plan that we would go do our fellowship, maybe come back. And once we got down there, we really fell in love with the West Coast as well as uh, academia. I wasn't the most academically productive uh, resident uh, when it came to, to publications. And so during my second year of fellowship, that's when I really found a passion for clinical research and presenting at meetings, getting involved with professional service, and always having a a strong inclination towards education and teaching, not just residents, but medical students. I really wanted that first job to be in a busy academic environment. And when the opportunity to uh, take up a faculty position at Harbor UCLA came up, and the academic appointments are through UCLA, I just felt like I really couldn't pass that up. And so spent the first 10 years there, really got uh, so much wonderful hands-on experience and met, and met some fantastic mentors. But deep down inside, you know, we always thought, just like many Canadians, you know, we're very proud of our heritage and of our nationality and proud of our country and being Canadian. And so we always kind of knew in the back of our minds that we would be coming back. It was just a matter of when and where. And so over the first uh, 10 years of my career, occasional job postings or openings would come up in places like Toronto and Vancouver, even Ottawa. And uh, it was just never really the right fit. Uh, Unlike the US, where if you're a surgical intensivist, you're doing ACS, you're doing trauma and you're rounding in the ICU one of the things about Canada, especially as a surgeon, is it may be a bit more difficult to get your foot into the ICU. There's always trauma surgery jobs, although they're few, uh, and not as uh, many or voluminous as in the US. Uh, there's always general surgery ACS jobs, but it's really getting that ICU job. And so when the posting for um, an ICU physician here in Victoria came up, uh, I knew that it was probably not the right fit because they weren't looking for a surgeon, there was no mention of trauma and then when I found out that there was no actual trauma center and a complete lack of a trauma system here on Vancouver Island and they were looking for a trauma medical director it just seemed like the perfect opportunity in terms of the next phase of my career. you know the first few years you're really learning to uh be competent um get comfortable in the OR with challenging cases and really figure out who you are and and get your footing. As I head into sort of the mid uh, phase of my career, I think one of the things that really attracts me about this job and what I've loved so much is really working with others, collaborating, leading and developing a system, which is exactly what we're doing.
1: Congratulations on really developing uh, the the trauma system in, victoria and you've really been successful at doing that what what has that been like uh setting up a trauma system in victoria and on vancouver island what kind of goes into something like that like as a you know as an outsider i would have no idea what actually goes into developing a true trauma system so what goes into that what was that experience like
2: yeah so i think one of the things that um American trauma centers do, especially organizations like the American College of Surgeons. They have their verification review committee. And obviously, every few years, you're going through that accreditation process. So, so you really start to learn as you participate in these uh, updates as well as these re-verifications, the importance of quality as well as patient safety peer review and the importance of various systems and operations and how they can support the actual trauma center as well as trauma system. And so very early in my career, that's something that, um, well, it's hard to avoid. You know, when I started out uh, as a very young surgeon, I very quickly took on the role as the ICU medical director. And so you're very quickly sort of immersed into the importance of patient safety, quality, And, you know, focusing on things like structure, process, and outcomes, all with the sort of end goal of improving value and patient safety. And so having learned those lessons, it was almost sort of the the next step, but looking at it at a larger scale. And I have to say that we've been very fortunate. Uh, They've been trying to get a, a trauma program off and running for more than the last 10 years here. And we've had so much support from our friends at places like Vancouver General Hospital who have been wanting to to work with us and liaise with us here on the island to develop the provincial system. So there was already uh, a lot of pieces in place. It just really took someone to kind of pick up the ball and carry it across the line. And fortunately, we've had so much wonderful support, not just from hospital administration and leaders uh, in British Columbia Healthcare, but also our community. And so it's been great. We've been collaborating with not just folks and friends from within the emergency room, anesthesia, all the various surgical specialties, but across disciplines, nursing, restorative services, and then liaising with other partners across the island. And so back in November, we went live with our trauma service at Victoria General Hospital. And I'm very proud and excited to say that as of January 1st, our neighbors a couple of hours north of us in Nanaimo launched their 247 uh, trauma MRP service. So we're slowly building the system and developing capacity. We're working on destination guidelines. We've implemented monthly peer review Monthly systems and operations, and things are really starting to flourish. So we're very excited.
0: Dennis, that's awesome to hear, and you know the fruits of all your effort and labor are certainly clear to the rest of us in the country. So congratulations!
2: You, you know, oh, that's too kind. Really? Thank you. Yeah, no, it's
0: true. I mean, you know the the challenges of doing this are not insignificant, and I I know you know no one likes to perseverate on the on the difficult piece of this Um, and to be fair you you're partners with some tremendous people and surgeons in Victoria I think the whole country knows that but there's certainly been speed bumps for you in trying to you know achieve this endeavor I have no doubt can you tell us a little bit about what some of those challenges have been and you know the second part to it is we asked this question to a lot of our our guests and how, how do you assess challenge how do you how do you deal with the problematic administrator or colleague or or department how do you how do you break through to the other side to, towards that common goal
2: how uh, great questions and definitely i think anytime you're trying to to get a program or service off the ground there's going to be numerous speed bumps and there's you know, there's always resistance to change, right? Change is scary and the status quo is comfortable, it's known. And so one of the first things I did really was to make sure that uh, I didn't speak too much. It was really more just about MBWA management by walking around, talking with people, asking them what challenges they faced and what were some things that they noticed around them in their day-to-day work were in need of improvement. And time and time again, it always comes back to patient care, patient care, patient safety. And I think coming out of this pandemic, we're starting to realize the importance of taking care of ourselves uh, and each other. And so coming on the scene, I think I I made a huge effort. I kind of told myself, I'm going to give it three months where I don't say anything. (laughs) I don't impose my envision, my ideas. I'm just going to listen and identify what the key problems are and then identify those sort of low-lying fruit things that we could do something about immediately where you get that immediate satisfaction and people can see that you're affecting change and then think about the the long-term picture and establishing not just a mission but vision for the program and obviously uh, without the support of hospital leadership and administration um, and everyone is vying for resources, you know, even in specialties or in programs where you think, geez, they've got like 40 faculty in that program. They've got all these resources. Um, People are always looking for more. And as we all know, uh, across the country, those resources are in critical um, supply and they're quite limited. And so, again, I think one of the big things we did was really just offer a solution. We looked at the problem, and what we found was that our length of stay uh, within our health authority uh, was quite long. We also noticed that some of our outcomes were not as good as some of our other health authorities. And this is objective data. The one great thing about trauma that we do so well is we do patient safety quality, and we have a trauma registry with dedicated registrars. And so it's hard to argue with the objective data, you know, and you're always being compared. I mean, you look at some of the efforts by ACS with TQIP and NISQIP, but there's benchmarking. And you can see who the outliers are. And unfortunately, for many, many years, we were outliers. And so I think taking that and emphasizing the importance uh, of patient safety, the importance of protocolization, adopting guidelines, and ensuring that we're making every effort every day to improve delivery of value care, uh, that seemed to resonate. And again, there's always going to be the naysayers. (laughs) There's always going to be the late adopters. I think uh, you can't worry too much about them. People just need to see that you're showing up every day, with a good attitude, looking to solve other people's problems. And eventually you start to rally and you build your village and your tribe and uh, spread that positive mission moving forward.
1: Well, congratulations again for, for all the really amazing work that you're doing. And, and we're looking forward and excited to seeing what what you'll do next. Speaking of amazing stuff that you've done, I mean, uh, you, you can see it right in the, in the picture there on the video you know, you're you're a podcaster, and your 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 podcast, The Trauma ICU Rounds, has been immensely popular. You won a bunch of awards for the work that you've done. How did you get into the world of podcasting, and what has that experience been like for you?
2: Well, probably a lot like uh, you guys did, I'm sure. Um, deep down, I think most of us who are into uh, free online access medication or foam and podcasting specifically, usually we're very dedicated educators. And uh, over the years, I've I've always made every effort to be involved, whether it was in simulation or classroom teaching, uh, teaching ATLS. I think I find no greater joy outside of taking care of patients than really teaching the next generation of surgeons uh, how to doctor and how to be the best potential surgeons and safest surgeons uh, that they can be. And one of the things that I, I did find is that year in and year out, you'd have the same sort of courses where you'd give the same old canned talk and interact with students. And oftentimes it would be on a very small scale. So maybe 10 students, 20 students. And, you know, it just came to the point where I really felt like I wanted to have a larger reach. And um, I wasn't an early adopter of podcasts, but certainly uh, there were a number of podcasts throughout my residency and fellowship that I found very, very helpful. You know, it's it's just so easy. You're going to the gym or you're on your way into work and you can listen to something and conceptually understand especially when it's well done, uh, the ins and outs of what would otherwise be complex issues, and uh, then apply that uh, at the bedside. And so that for me was very attractive. And so yeah, I did a little bit of research in terms of what was involved. I very fortunately had a a good friend of mine, Tim Horechko, who has a podcast, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine uh, Playbook. And he does monthly episodes he's been doing it for years and he was a really great resource for setting up your equipment and thinking about um show notes and an episode um sort of list and so it certainly helped to have someone help uh, guide uh guide me early in the process and then you kind of just fall in love with it you know it you guys know this i've seen some of the incredible guests you've had uh, on cold steel and you get to build bridges and relationships and talk with really cool and wonderful people that you might not otherwise uh, have access to. And then to share that knowledge with others is just uh, that in and of itself is is a wonderful gift. And so it's been a great journey. I've been a little away from the show uh, over the last few months as we've been getting the trauma program here up and running, but already have my episode list for the next uh, year ready to go. And so time to get back on that saddle.
1: Oh, well, it's fantastic! You know, like um, I'll echo some of the things that you said. Like I think some of the connections that you that you make through this are really neat. Like I, I love the episode where you you had uh, um, Sharmila Disneig and uh, Christian. I hope I'm not butchering your last names, Virgilio, and uh, a bunch of other guests come and talk and uh, and debate with you about what's your approach for the difficult gallbladder. You know, should we be opening? Should we be doing subtotals? Like it's it was fascinating. I think so, so many people listened to that and enjoyed those type of episodes. And you have episodes ranging from, you know, really like uh you know common medical things that you'll see in the ICU to very surgical things. So, you know, just something for everybody. You know, I'm curious, having done this work, where you think the future of medical education is going in the future? Because it still boggles me a little bit that we have all these resources, right? Like we have things like trauma ICU rounds. We have things like behind the knife. We have uh hours and hours, thousands of hours of videos on, on YouTube. Uh You have things like the Toronto Video Atlas. Um, And yet, you know, we still give the same, we still get asked to give lectures to the medical students about diverticulitis, right? So uh, I'm curious, where do you think the future of medical education is going um, as someone who's a podcaster and has uh, their finger on the pulse.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there really is something to be said uh, about multimedia resources and surgical education and on-demand learning. You know, I think uh, when I think back to undergrad and and going to these huge lecture halls with hundreds of other students and taking notes in class and it being a very kind of cold, non-personal way of learning... I think these days across podcasts, video-based education, and you mentioned some great resources already, um, simulation and I think VR or virtual reality, I think uh, have tremendous opportunities, not just to teach concepts and theory, but for the, the pragmatic aspect of being a physician. Working with others, thinking about things like crew or crisis resource management, how to lead a team, how to communicate, close the loop, um, and focusing in on key patient safety initiatives. So I think that that's where we're at. I do still enjoy the the small group learning and uh, case presentations as a way of really kind of uh, assessing learners' uh, grasp. Uh, of key concepts and things like that versus the kind of talking at them and and lecturing. And uh, I think on-demand learning for the younger generation is really the way to go. You know, let them learn at their own pace using a variety of different resources And instead of us just talking at them, when they do come to to meet with us, it's like that flipped classroom model. You know, what questions do you have? Let's apply what you've read and learned to a particular scenario. And then putting it into context. You know, you look at the first two years of medical school in most medical programs, they're spending so much time learning about mitochondria and, and cell biology and physics. And honestly, I mean... I'm sure some of that is relevant, but so much of it isn't, you know, it's not until their third year, they've already done 24 months of education that they're finally starting to interview a patient, you know, and thinking about things like emotional quotient and EQ and the importance of empathy and communication, (laughs) you know, spending so much time just not at the bedside and then not really understanding what's truly relevant you know, to one's day-to-day clinical practice. So I think the sooner we can get our students and learners at the bedside, taking care of real patients with adequate supervision uh, and real-time feedback, uh, I really think that's the way that we should all be kind of moving towards.
0: I like that message a lot, Dennis. You know, we had a guest on who I'm sure you know well from McMaster, Paul Engels, and we talked about um, specifically trauma education at the residency level across Canada. And I want to drill down on that a little bit with you because you're such an expert in this space. Um, you know, in the Canadian Journal of Surgery, Paul's article will be coming out in the next couple of months, I believe. Um, and it, it's a it's a powerful, um, uh, be careful what I say here, because I don't want to ruin the, 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 the discussion and, the, and the, the release of it. But it's a powerful message in terms of concerns across the country both with regard to tremendous heterogeneity in structure in our programs with regard to trauma education and experience and exposure and then secondarily just purely volume so structure mm-hmm. and volume which um, you know it is true of a lot of things and i I don't know you know when these conversations come up and at least when I'm involved in them Sometimes somebody will say something about, say, an open cholecystectomy or a conversion to an open cholecystectomy, and I'll, I'll sort of say that's to me it's apples and oranges. Like you can always back almost always back out of a lap coli and send it to me mm-hmm. at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary, and I'll, I'll take care of it as an HPV surgeon. But you can't necessarily back out of what shows up at your door that's critically injured. So I'm curious how you see Canada, how you compare that to, of course, the U.S. and And what are some of the tools and the ways, things that we should be thinking about moving forward in this country?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that even outside of Canada in the US, I mean, so many times when we think about operative trauma, you think of the US and any major urban uh, center or core, and you're thinking, oh, you're going to get great trauma experience. But to be honest with you, if you look at the number of verified trauma centers throughout the US there aren't that many that are doing day in, day out operative trauma. You know, you think of places like Baltimore, you think of places like Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, Denver, Miami, um, Emory, you know, where you trained. But outside of some major centers, they're doing a lot of non-op management and they're seeing what we're seeing. It's gonna be gravity related injuries and old people on antithrombotic therapy. I think that's one of the major sort of pushes or reasons why the acute care surgery model uh, has been pursued. It's another way of ensuring that once our residents graduate, that they get that operative experience to deal with sick septic patients with intra-abdominal catastrophes. But, you know, I, I struggle with that as well because I feel like at the end of a five or six year residency, you should be a good acute care surgeon. Hopefully you're you're able to manage open abdomens and know when to bail. But it's true, we are doing a lot more non-operative management. And so I think a lot of our learners aren't getting that uh, hands-on intraoperative experience and decision making that's required to deal with complex and challenging cases, especially those that involve um, operative intervention. And I just think of any foregut surgery and You know, recently we were supposed to uh, chat earlier um, this month and and we had a very complicated patient in our ICU who had uh, an injury to the second portion of the duodenum, um, which leaked and caused us a lot of headaches and a lot of, you know, sort of uh, intraoperative decision making and technical challenges went into fixing this person's IVC, removing their kidney, and then sorting out through multiple uh, repeat surgeries how to best deal with this recurrent uh, anastomotic breakdown. And so, again, I think there's a number of things that we could be doing. Um, there are certain organizations, not just the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, but EAST, AST Western Trauma Association. And then, of course, uh, within Canada, we have CAGS. But You know, I think a a lot of these programs are focusing on uh, ensuring that there are very clearly laid out objectives as well as goals for those of us who are interested in pursuing trauma and acute care surgery. I think participating in the American College of Courses outside of ATLS, which include things like ADAM or Advanced Trauma Operative Management and ASSET or the Definitive Trauma Surgical course are also really great ways for us to get at least some hands-on intraoperative exposure using cadavers, as well as uh, live swine models uh, to really practice skills like performing a cardiography or suturing a heart or repairing an IVC. And I think those courses are are available throughout the country. Um, You know, trauma and general surgery for me go hand in hand. And it has been so interesting to see the rise of minimally invasive surgery and robotics. And I look at some of my junior colleagues and they're so comfortable and they work those chopsticks so well. And then when it comes time to to opening, you can see there's this hesitation. Whereas for, you know, surgeons like in our generation, uh, that- would be my go-to is just to open and be completely comfortable setting up my omni book walter to ensure i've got the best possible exposure uh, open coli as you mentioned that's my absolute favorite operation and anytime someone tells me that it doesn't give you a better view than a laparoscopic uh, approach in a difficult gallbladder i think to myself boy like are you not setting it up properly like i've never had difficulties uh, opening and then understanding the anatomy and, and knowing when to bail uh, versus not so a bit of a long-winded response but i think it's a it's a multi-tiered approach that begins early uh, in medical school and really that curriculum through undergrad and graduate education i think should be building on uh, on each other
1: yeah, i saw a tweet from uh, one of the colorectal surgeons at umass recently that said maybe we should do a course not do so many courses on lap approaches to rectal cancer maybe we should do a course on open Approaches to colon cancer. I thought that was an interesting, an interesting tweet, and certainly generated some discussion. So we, we could talk about this all day, and and uh, and, and uh, I think there would be lots and lots of th- thoughts uh, to to think about and, and ways to move forward. But we wanted, you know, as the trauma ICU guy who delivers <laughs> such, <laughs> such 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 thoughtful uh, rounds and such thoughtful podcasts, we wanted to do a clinical. Topic with you, and I, I thought it'd be a, a neat um, discussion between, you know, you, Doctor Ball, and maybe I can chime in a little bit here. Uh, and we want to talk, talk talk about something that comes and and unfortunately we all have to deal with a bit on call, which is that kind of dreaded facial dehiscence scenario. But so I'll, I'll tell you about a patient just to set the scenario. Awesome. Um, that I had in fellowship. So is a is a guy who um, you know we have a big. Sort of homeless or or unhoused population in in Vancouver the the downtown east side Um, and this gentleman had had a a, a resection in the past for cancer and then of course developed a stricture that was very very low you know long story short came with a large bowel obstruction and really needed an EPR and that was really the only definitive operation that he could have to to sort this out. and so he was kind of malnourished, but we had really no choice given his, him being obstructed. So we do his APR and, um, you know, seven seven days later, six or seven days later, uh, we're rounding on him and, you know, he coughs and there's a big gush of fluid that, uh, that comes out from his wound. And of course, this gentleman, you know, has poor hygiene. You know, I don't think he's, he probably had a bath and... A month prior to seeing him, he'd lost a bunch of weight. Uh, he'd abused fentanyl in the, in the past. Um, and when you examine his wound, you can clearly feel that there's there's a defect in his fascia. So maybe just for our medical student listeners or our junior resident listeners, how do you define what a, what a fascial dehiscence is?
2: Yeah, a great scenario, and unfortunately, um, something that I think we've all encountered as surgeons. Uh, That gush, the seven-day mark, are all pretty classic uh, hallmark features, at least in terms of timing and presentation for patients with a fascial dehiscence. And what is a fascial dehiscence? You know, anytime we close an incision, uh, whether it's a midline laparotomy a transverse incision, oblique incision on the abdominal wall. Uh, there's going to be a number of factors that can predispose towards weakening of that incision. And anytime the abdominal wall tension overcomes either not strength or integrity and fascial strength, you have the risk for a potential fascial dehiscence where the incision comes apart. And it may be partial like in this case or complete. And obviously when it's complete and someone's entire for example, midline incision dehisses, well, then we're looking at complications like evisceration, which I think most surgeons would agree is a bit of a surgical emergency. Uh, unfortunately, these, these are, are are fairly common. Uh, usually less than 5% of incisions uh, will dehiss. But as we've already alluded to, and you've so clearly alluded to, I think there are a number of not just technical factors but patient factors and host factors that may result in an increased risk for dehiscence. And so malnutrition, uh, use of corticosteroids, and a number of other perioperative uh, factors really plays into the the potential risk for dehiscence, including obesity, COPD, anything that's going to increase intra-abdominal pressure, has the potential to predispose towards a fascial dehiscence. And like any good surgeon, um, we want to look at our um, sort of procedure as well as our technique, because oftentimes you can trace Uh, things back to something we potentially could have been done differently. Although when you look at most risk factors for fascial dehiscence, I think a lot of them do have to do with intraoperative and patient care factors. Uh, Although we talk about the importance of square knots and knot integrity, I think when you look at most dehiscences, it's not so much that the knot comes undone. It's usually the suture tears through the fascia. And the question then becomes, well, why would it do that outside of those patient and host factors? And one thing I always emphasize to our residents and learners is the importance of very good hemostasis at the end of the case. So there are no hematomas or seromas within that wound bed. And the importance, especially with midline incisions, of opening them truly in the midline. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than trying to bring together a midline that's not midline. And so you're suturing rectus muscle to each other. It's tearing the muscle, you know, that muscle doesn't have strength. So uh, yeah, in a nutshell, anytime the uh, tensions across the abdominal wall are too high, we do put patients at risk for dehiscence.
1: So when when you're um, assessing someone, and, and you're, you're perhaps worried about Someone who has a fascial dehiscence, uh, What are some of the key, you know, uh, findings that you're looking for on exam, or what are some things that really would trigger in your mind that hey, maybe this person has a fascial
0: dehiscence?
2: Yeah, I think this really comes back to good daily rounds and assessments of our patient's uh, abdomen as well as incision. You know, so often, you know, it's a hassle to take down the dressings and you're in a rush and it's five in the morning and the room's dark, but really being mindful and and paying close attention to the physical exam as well as the patient's symptoms. Uh, Anytime you have a wound that is leaking fluid, Uh, That's always concerning. And so that gush that you have was a, a pretty pathognomonic kind of presentation for fascial dehiscence. But even before that, I think again, it comes back to a lot of host and patient factors, as well as things related to your initial operation. You know, I kind of mentioned the importance of of excellent hemostasis, but one of the other things that I think can contribute to fascial dehiscence is infection, whether that's a superficial, deep, or organ space infection. And in trauma, we see a lot of patients coming through with hollow viscous injuries and in patients with, for example, colonic injuries, destructive colonic injuries, let's say from a gunshot wound. Uh, At the time of closure, I always ask myself, should we be closing the skin? You know, should we be putting this patient at risk and what are some other possible options uh, to immediate primary closure? Um, yourself, uh, Drs. Farouk or, or Bob, what are your thoughts in terms of um, appropriate closure techniques in patients with hollow viscous injuries?
0: Yeah, I agree, Dennis. I think uh, hopefully a lot of us think the same way. You know, the, the, the other part of it is you know what procedure are you doing and as you point out what are the comorbidities and the risk factors of that individual patient so right. you know when someone's shot and they have stool all over the place up in their chest through a diaphragm into their wound you know that's a scenario where you're not going to set up uh, a protective plastic covering on the skin and you're not going to have a wound protector and you're not going to have a you know an antiseptic bundle and the right temperature and and, right. and a lot of the things that you may or may not believe in, you know, from, from case to case, but um, yeah, I agree. Slowing your brain down at towards the end and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and really paying attention to that closure. You, you know, it's interesting. And I, I think it's um, I hope this comes across without judgment, but we all know that there's sort of two, two groups of surgeons, I think. And I, I don't think age or experience necessarily plays into it. You have, and they wouldn't mention, or wouldn't, wouldn't be upset if I mentioned them by name, but you have John Cameron's, Keith Lillimos, Dave Felicianos on one side of things who really will be there until the last staple goes into the skin. So closing the abdomen to them is a critical part of these procedures, whether they're emergency or scheduled. And then, you know, there's other surgeons who routinely will... Uh, do the complex parts of the operation perhaps and sneak out and let a trainee or somebody else close those wounds. And I think it's clear to all of us, um, you know, as long as you're honest with what you're doing um, and accepting risk one way or the other, there is a difference in, in wound outcomes in those patients. And it comes back, I think, to your comment about before you finish, really think about each of those steps technique matters it matters as you said staying in the midline it matters using the curve of the needle it matters in terms of selecting the right stitch um you know the top and the bottom of a long midline laparotomy are closed differently all these subtleties and i think no matter for the for the trainees where you train there will be a group of surgeons which may be larger or smaller at your institutions who really do care about how these abdomens are closed and you know, sometimes I think trainees are like, well, why is, you know, and Amir can speak to this directly, but why is Dr. Ball all over me about this closure? You know, I know how to close an abdomen. I've done it 150 times so far in my residency. Try and flip your your, your brain around like Amir always did and said, okay, I'm going to try and learn a bunch of new stuff here from somebody who is so OCD about closing it. Let's go. Because the nuance, the technical nature, I think is probably at least in my mind as a bit of a technocrat probably 90 or 95 percent of the challenge
1: so let's stay on this topic for a second and just be very get very technical about it um so you know my my practice is obviously very different in the sense that when even though i deal with colon and small bowel all day every day you know it's a very controlled i have my alexis there it's a small wound it's often minimally invasive surgeries it's very very different scenario um but but you know even even then i, I still think that the, those principles that you guys are talking about are, are extremely important so when you guys are closing a fascial a, a fascial you know when you're doing a fascial closure what kind of suture are you using um, um what what kind of bites are you using especially in the uh, emergency type setting um, are you guys using VAC? I know in the, the colorectal world, you know, nobody's really been able to show that something like a VAC, uh, changes outcomes. But obviously, you know, it is very different in an elective plan setting for, for a VAC versus not a VAC. So, so Dr. Kim, can you talk to us a little bit about some specific things, suture choice, um, uh, how you take your bites and, and perhaps VACs or no VACs?
2: Yeah, great question. And I think we do have some data to guide us in this regard. But again, you know, keeping with the principles of evidence-based medicine, whenever you interpret a study, ask yourself, what are the results? Are they valid? And do they apply to my patient population? And so probably the, the most widely cited recent study is the STITCH trial looking at closure of uh, the abdominal wall or fascia using smaller non-absorbable suture like a 2-O-proline and versus how we used to be trained taking centimeter back from the fascia bites or centimeter apart we're doing smaller bites and closer together and you know I I kind of think of the analogy of uh, a jacket you know you have two ways of closing a jacket you have one with a zipper a winter jacket or one like a coat where you're putting the buttons together and which seems to be more secure. And you would think, well, it's the zipper, it's the kind of continuous small bites is gonna be more secure. And in fact, when you look at sort of one year outcomes, which again, I'm not sure that that's the right outcome for, for trauma surgeons or acute care surgeons who are doing emergent surgery, you do find that the incidence of ventral hernias are higher when you're using bigger sutures with bigger bites. So theoretically, I think that all makes sense. Um, the other issue outside of just the the suture type, whether it's absorbable versus non-absorbable, larger versus smaller, and the continuous versus interrupted debate. And I think that's something that comes up at MM's monthly, right? Well, how did you close the abdomen? And you're gonna have that camp that says we only do interrupteds with number one vicrils, and I've never had a dehiscence. And then the other camp where they're always talking about the importance of doing continuous sutures, you know, it got to the point, uh, about five years ago where I just decided that I'm going to do both. (laughs) I'm going to do continuous and every 10 centimeters I'm sticking in and interrupted. (laughs) So these days I've actually uh, moved a little bit more towards the smaller, closer bites. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on the particular situation. I do like to put in interrupteds uh, as I go as well. And I think uh, as uh, Dr. Ball mentioned, so much of it has to do with the technique. You know, the less tissue trauma and sawing through and pushing of needles and sutures that you're doing, uh, the better. You want to make sure that you're atraumatic when you're handling the fascia, And if you think, you know, in that particular patient we talked about to start off uh, this discussion, you know, they're malnourished, Um, maybe they're immunosuppressed, and they're already at a high risk for potential fascial dehiscence. Is there a role for things like retention sutures, which for me, I still use fairly liberally in the right uh, patient subset. But I know many people have moved away from retention sutures, don't even know how to to set up retention sutures, um, but I think those can be helpful. Regarding the use of Vax, similar to the colorectal uh, literature, at least when it comes to acute care surgery, um, the outcomes from studies looking at uh, prophylactic use of Vax, skin Vax, uh, really haven't been that impressive in terms of decreasing the incidence of superficial or deep surgical site infections. So that's not something that uh, I utilize routinely. That's for sure. It's usually on a case by case basis. But I, I do think there is something to be said about small bites, uh, continuous running sutures from both above and below, and then excellent attention to hemostasis.
1: I, I will put a little plug in for, for something, Dr. Ball, what I would do at the end of every case where you kind of Take a spine, you take your dirty fingers out of the wound. You tell them, tell you to keep your dirty fingers out of the wound and rub the, the edges of the, the skin a, a little bit vigorously with a sponge just to see if there's any points of bleeding. And then diligently take even little all these little bleeders on the skin and make sure so that even those little skin bleeders wouldn't be a source of a That's something I do quote. I have many ballisms, and that is one of them.
2: Uh, so I got to say just as you said that i've got to interrupt because you know i i joke about this every single time we're closing the incision with students and residents but i always get my asepto syringe i take my suction or yankauer off i instill the wound with my asepto syringe i go through it with my suction tubing it'll actually show you areas that you thought were hemostatic that aren't and then I do the exact same thing I go buzz 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 and I always joke that you don't need an RCT this 100% will decrease the risk for wound infection and dehiscence and people look at me like I'm crazy but I know there are other surgeons out there that do that and we don't need the data to support it. clearly clearly great minds think like <laughs> Dr. Ball any
1: comments suture choice uh bite size mesh oh I didn't even talk about this you ever are you guys ever thinking about mesh specifically and we'll get to we'll, we'll deal with this in a little bit but if you if you have a, a incision that you think is at high risk uh you think it's reasonably clean you are you guys ever putting in uh prophylactic mesh
0: yeah this is a fun discussion and there's a lot more uh opinion than science we you know having said that as as dennis has said there there is a number of rcts and there is a number of tangential manuscripts that that really tell us probably a one single thing. Like everything else in surgery, is not going to make or break the bank, but taken as a bundle or as a collective, they really do start to matter. Whether that's uh, prophylaxis or infection prevention, or or whether that's you know a critical care um, uh, issue way down the road, it, it doesn't matter a ton. And things like wound protectors. Um, covering the skin, changing your gloves, redosing your antimicrobials when appropriate, are all really important. And I, you know, I think probably we tend to forget, particularly in these longer, more complex cases. So we need systematic reminders in some way around us to help us not fall down when it comes to that. If you ask me specifically, like you have about suture choices, You know uh, we could tear apart the stitch trial quite easily and as you may or may not remember when that trial came out at least our institution in calgary on the hpv service we tried a bunch of them and had some really bad issues very quickly so we kind of threw it away i think at the end of the day it probably doesn't matter whether you're um you know a science left or a science right guy when it comes to your suture choice what matters to me again is technique and i would challenge anybody watching someone else close to critically look at every single bite that someone takes or somebody of me and your brain has to be switched on with every single bite in full capacity, not to skive here or miss a little bit there or get short, you know, over here. That technique matters. And I think that the tech the strong suturing technique matters more than the actual probably suture that you're that you're choosing. And it's probably reflective of a whole bunch of other things in the operation. Not, not unlike you know, we know blood loss is a is a clear indicator of quality, not only oncologically but in terms of outcomes in general. Uh, in longer cases, it's sort of the same the same uh, philosophy or principle. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, we didn't even really touch on this, but things like hypothermia, fluid management, those things also clearly matter for for facelifts, so. Be a good surgeon. Uh, I think uh, is is one perhaps takeaway.
0: Um,
1: I, I want I, I want to come to the actual management of of uh, the person who has the burst abdomen, as they, they love to call it in, in the UK literature. Uh, but you know, uh, if you let's say you have that scenario where you have someone uh, on the floor, it's day seven or eight, and they you you identify, hmm, it does seem like there's a little gap in the fascia. There's clearly fluid coming through. They don't have an evisceration. Um, Are you ever, Dr. Kim, are you ever managing these patients conservatively? And I have seen this done where someone says, well, just close the skin real tight and, you know, they'll have a hernia. That's okay. We'll we'll come back and fix that later. Are you ever managing someone,
2: uh, you know, non-operatively? Yeah, so we definitely have done that. Definitely. I think anytime you see that, though, you have to ask yourselves why. So for me, that's usually some sort of infection. Uh, Again, whether that's a superficial, deep, or organ space. So provided that the patient's hemodynamically stable, they're not, frankly, eviscerated, they're not peritonitic. uh, Those patients I'll usually send for a CT scan to get a better sense of the underlying anatomy and to identify whether or not there's an undrained pelvic abscess that should be drained operatively versus percutaneously. And so, yes, I think it's totally reasonable to manage patients with a partial fascial dehiscence, particularly with high-risk features, uh, conservatively, and understanding that you will be back to fight another day uh, to, to fix a ventral hernia in the future. Whenever it's possible to potentially fix it, I think it's not unreasonable to do so. Again, most of these due to fascia being torn. And so you're going to have a lot of necrotic fascia, torn fascia, that's going to predispose to further infection. So in general, I do like to debride that fascia and not leave that tissue hanging around. And again, getting back to the technical aspect of closing, so many times you'll see people as they're going through, the person who's assisting is like really pulling on that suture as hard as they can and strangulating that fascia. And that's really not necessary. Oftentimes, post-operative patients will develop edema, fascial edema. And so this whole idea of approximating, not strangulating, I think is so important. So yeah, short answer is absolutely you can can manage fascial dehiscence conservatively. You definitely want to get some coverage, whether that's skin only. Uh, And where technically feasible and possible, uh, if you can fix it to to breed the fascia back to healthy edges... Uh, That might be reasonable as well. Oftentimes, though, at about a week out, probably not the right time to start thinking about anterior component separation or a tar or any other fancy means of of closing that uh, wound. And certainly if there is exposed bowel and you're going to proceed with uh, sort of non- uh, primary closure of the fascia that's where I think using the vac can be very helpful particularly laying down that white sponge on the bowel and then slowly helping that wound granulate in and maybe a delayed primary closure of the skin
1: so so let's drill down on there so let's say this is not the wound our ours was certainly not the kind of wound that we could uh, unfortunately sit on it was tried and uh you know when there was bowel sitting in the wound, a day or two later, it became clear that that was uh, that was not an option. So we took the patient back to the operating room, and as you described, the the suture had really torn right through the the fascia, and and um, you know it was really really low quality. There was an element of some you know a bit of an abscess as well that I'm sure had contributed to things. So you you talk a little bit about the situation that you're gonna you're gonna debride uh, some of the dead kind of fascia back. How do you approach? Um, now closing this uh, this fascia, this this dehiscence. What are some of the principles and techniques in terms of how are you going to bring those edges together, especially if you feel like there's a significant amount of tension on it?
2: Yeah, so great question. I think there's a, a number of different options uh, to this. Uh, number one, when you've got exposed bowel, You got to get coverage and you got to protect that bowel because the last thing this patient needs in addition to fascial dehiscence is development of an enteroatmospheric fistula or an entrocutaneous fistula, which we know are just riddled with issues, uh, not just for surgeons, but more so for the patient's. And so depending on the size of the defect and you know, ensuring that you're debriding that fascia back to healthy bleeding edges, if you're there left with a defect that you cannot bring together uh, without undue tension, I think those are patients where considering VAC therapy might be very, very helpful. And what I like to do with that, uh, depending on the size of the defect, is once you lay down your abthera, Uh, Oftentimes, in order to prevent those edges from further um, spreading apart uh, at the time of closure, just making sure you get like a number one nylon or number two nylon and do almost like a vest over pants or a figure of eight to keep that uh, fascia together. And that's something that can be serially tightened as you bring them back to the operating room every two to three days. And in those case scenarios, oftentimes the one thing you're looking for is just preventing further injury to the bowel and then development of healthy granulation tissue. Skin only closures work there. You can also think about things like skin grafts, depending on the size of the defect. But I think uh, do no further harm and where you can achieve reasonable fascial closure without undue tension, do it. But in this case, it doesn't sound like that's something that's going to be possible. So to just
1: sound clear for, so I'm clear for any listeners who might be listening to this. So what you're actually doing is you're actually putting a piece of the the vac sponge yeah. the, over top of your Apthera, and then you're actually putting some sutures over top of that sponge and then uh, bringing them back serially for, for closure. So that, you know, I mean, I'll just comment that that requires a lot of diligence and and effort that you to, to you know that you want to get this patient closed and you know anecdotally it's 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 a challenge because you know if you're the, the surgeon on call you don't want to be doing that case at like ten or eleven o'clock it's like oh my god the I got to do that fascial dehiscence or whatever it's not like anyone's idea of a fun case to do it at ten or eleven but if you don't have the diligence to do it um, you, you know that person's never going to get closed and then they will have that those issues that you that you talked about. Dr. Ball, I know you, you know you certainly have some principles that I've learned from you uh, over time in terms of like getting that difficult to close fascia uh, together. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the principles? You know, Particularly one thing that I, I do like that you talk about is where you put those sutures in terms of the top of the incision, the middle of the incision or the bottom of the incision.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I, I'm so pleased to hear Dr. Kim talk about so much of this. It seems like we were trained in the same places, the same people. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you, you know, my first thirty thousand foot comment, Amira, would be, and I think we all know this intuitively, but probably is helpful to state it. If you're taking your or another patient back because of some technical failure, you're pretty silly if you use the same technique again. That's a, that's a moderately arrogant viewpoint of it. So you're gonna employ some sort of different strategy and hopefully you've trained um, in, in, in a place where you've been taught and you've seen enough patients to have a number of tools in all these regards in, in your belt. So you're gonna try and pull out a different tool to to try and deal with the problem. Um, I think what you're asking me is, is some of the, the technical pearls which which really, for me, in addition to what Dr. Kim has said, um, you know, and you've heard me say this both locally when we train together as well as nationally, internationally, I think almost all abdomens can be closed. I think we all believe that now and we've learned that through the last 20 years, quite honestly, there's exceptions, necrotizing infections, close range shotguns and so on for sure. But in general, that should be your mindset and your ability in general, if you believe that mindset to close an abdomen, means that the ability to close it is directly proportional to surgeon effort. So I don't mean that in a, in a nasty way, but these patients in general need a champion. They need you or someone like you who is going to take the ball proverbially by the horns and you're going to take that patient back yourself, the same person. Every other day or every day or whatever the cadence of progress you're making demands. It's really hard to pass these patients off to partners to have them understand what you're trying to achieve, not to have been there the preceding three operations and seen progress or understand progress. But the concept, though, is you want to make a little bit of progress at minimum every time you go back. You don't want to trash the fascia. So there's a thousand different cheap ways to do this. Mm -hmm. There's a thousand, maybe not a thousand, but there's dozens of commercial, expensive, more expensive ways to do this. But you want to keep A, maintaining the domain on the inside, keep that stickiness away, and B, keep moving the abdomen closer and closer together. The other comment would be don't, you know, as I said, don't mess with the fascia. So if you're putting Mm -hmm. in sutures, you can put them superfascially. You can be superficial to the fascia. The fascia will follow what superficially comes together. Obviously, if you can use a, a wound vac like Dr. Kim has talked about, that's helpful to nursing and to fluid control and to a whole bunch of things. The, you know, the two large companies that make most of our negative suction uh, open abdomen products will tell you that there is a midline tension generator with those sponge products. I'm not entirely sure that's true, quite frankly. Um, And my last comment would be, you know, I I saw this this week. Um, Surgeons confusing the idea of making progress at the top and the bottom of a laparotomy wound as helpful, meaning I'm going to put two or three sutures in the bottom and two or three sutures in the top. That is a critical mistake. You're converting the geometry of a torso of an abdomen from an up and down rectangular or certainly oval structure into a circle. And if you can close a circle almost anywhere in life, I would love to learn how to do that. (laughs) I know how to close ovals. And so you want to maintain that length. You want to increase tension and, and approximation in a very logical, serial way, time after time. Don't be tricked by the older school technique of a little bit at the top, a little bit at the bottom, and well, we got an extra stitch. You end up with this big circle that needs a skin graft, and probably didn't need to didn't need to be there.
1: That's great. Thank you. To, thank you to both of you. Um, you, know, you talked a little bit, Dr. Kim, about the use of retention sutures. When when are you using retention sutures? And and specifically, can you talk about if you're if you're using them? How do you put them in?
2: Yeah. So again. Retention sutures, I usually use in a prophylactic fashion. So when I have that malnourished patient who's immunosuppressed, on steroids, complete temporal wasting, and you just know they're at a super high risk for fascial dehiscence, that's when I'm usually doing that. So I'll place them typically about 10 to 12 centimeters uh, across the length of the incision. I usually for this, I used to do full thickness uh, abdominal bites. Now I'll try to avoid the skin. And so just start in the subcutaneous tissues and make sure that I take very generous bites, very far lateral of the entire abdominal wall minus the skin, typically with a number one nylon or number two. So the big harpoon. And as you bring that up through the superficial aspect of the incision, I still just utilize 14 or 16 French red rubber catheters that I'll cut in a way that it sits nicely at the level of the skin. And so it's just another added sort of layer of security. Uh, Most of these patients I'll also have in a binder. Uh, Again, that's just my own personal preference. I think it's just another layer of security, whether or not it's actually going to prevent any form of dehiscence, probably not, but I feel better that I thought about it and and patients feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more secure as well. And so, yeah, it's not something that I'll I'll utilize frequently, but uh, every few months or so I'll have patients with retention sutures.
1: And, and, you know, you'll read about and you'll see in textbooks a whole bunch of other different techniques, like, you know, sewing a piece of mesh as a bridging mesh, for example, to this, to the fascias And then, and then using that to try to pull things together, you know, not to get, you know, drag on and on about this. But I, I do think, as you, as you both have alluded to, having some tricks up in your back pocket is helpful. And so, uh, and that's why I'm picking both of your, your brains for, for pearls. Are you ever putting sewing mesh onto the uh, edges of fashion using that as something to kind of pull things together? And alternatively, when are you actually thinking about, when when are you accepting, for example, that this is not an abdomen that can be closed and I'm going to do something like a bridging mesh?
2: Yeah. I, again, like uh, as Dr. Ball mentioned, I think most abdomens can be closed. And uh, in addition to the technical aspect of things, you know, there's been a couple of studies looking at uh, hypertonic saline as an adjunct. I just saw that there was a, a recent trial showing that it actually doesn't help at all in terms of decreasing visceral edema, but it is something that I still do. Uh, I feel like you know theoretically it makes sense to decrease some of that bowel edema. I think uh, I I don't usually like to sew in in mesh, and, and as we've already heard, you know, trying to avoid beating up on that already beaten up fascia is important. Um, certainly, in the past, I have used devices like a Whitman's patch, but again, you're you're sewing that you know, Velcro device onto the fascia and then reefing that towards the midline. I think it does address some of the issues in terms of avoiding that circle because you're really putting tension across the entirety of the length of the incision. Of course, the length of the incision is going to predispose one towards the fascial dehiscence. There are other devices. I think, you know, the more lateral you can get, avoiding that midline fascia for your final definitive closure is important and trying to stay out laterally by the semi lunaris line is important. And so, whether you're using something like a Kanika device or some of these other sort of trans abdominal wall anchoring systems, uh, I think is, is very helpful as well. So, Dr. Leah Tatabi at the University of Chicago um, has a great presentation and sort of has shared with us their guidelines and their sort of setup. For these sorts of transabdominal fixation traction devices, which do seem to to be very helpful,
1: is there one in particular that you seem to uh, gravitate towards? That's and I, like, and I'll just say for our audience, we don't have any affiliation per se with any particular product or company. But is there any one thing that you guys kind of your go to, whether you know, and, and some of these are expensive, like the Abra, et cetera. But is there is there something that you kind of gravitate towards and go to when you're when you're really having trouble?
2: No, I'll be honest with you. I think um, when you have that burst abdomen, big open abdomen, again we're talking about the souffle, not the pistachio type abdomen. Uh, I think it's important to kind of use a number of different techniques. But to be honest with you, like where I am now, we don't have access to Abra or any uh, fancy closure devices. And so for these patients, oftentimes it's a, it's a labor of love. I think, you know, you mentioned coming back at 10 p.m. Doing, that's, that's when these cases are going to get done. There's no time uh, during the days to get these done. So it's going to be the open slate. It's going to be in the evenings, but being dedicated to that every 48 to 72 hours, coming in and making a little bit of a change, um, I think is critical. It's that dedication. Dr. Ball, any comments,
1: uh, any any particular devices or
2: techniques that uh,
1: are your go-tos? Do you ever use something like a, um, an Abra? Do you ever use mesh? Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, no, I agree with Dr. Kim. I don't use any commercial product whatsoever. I use the, the litany of uh, cheap and effective um, tools that he's talked about, which cost about $9 a pop. Um, which is helpful to, uh, to a healthcare system anywhere <laughs> anywhere in the world, hopefully. And it's certainly, uh, you know, it's transportable to anywhere in the world. So I continue to do that. And I don't see a lot of benefit, quite honestly, to a lot of the expensive products. As far as, you know, you asked it earlier too, prophylactic mesh. That's a very interesting question. Prophylactic biologics is also another interesting domain. I think in general, the answer is no. And it's no across most places and most specialties and subspecialties um, there is some high volume hepatic transplantation programs in the u.s a couple in germany that do put in prophylactic biologic in those patients because their hernia rate is so high obviously because of immunosuppression amongst other uh, risk factors um, but the, the evidence for that is, is certainly not randomized and nor perspective and it's, it's not great but o- outside of that um, you know that's a big cost to a patient in a sketchy sort of case scenario so you should probably think twice about it you know and you know as you probably remember when we had Mike Rosen on and it's something that Mike and I talk about offline a lot um, we probably jump to using mesh just in general across general surgery too often is the honest truth and you know a lot of patients maybe don't need to be reinforced in the same hardcore traditional way that we've thought and in some patients, it's, it's worth a try, and if they have a hernia recurrence, then obviously you're going to change your technique for the second time there and potentially use a a, a mesh to reinforce it. But it does require case-by-case you know, case thoughtfulness and uh, realizing every patient's different, both anatomically as well as physiologically from a risk factor point of view.
1: Well, thank you to both of you again for for all your thoughts and Dr Kim thank you so much for for joining us uh once again at, at, in the evening on, on your on a Friday night so much appreciated we we always like to ask our guests um for uh you know the, this classic question that we, have, we that we always end our podcast on and, and the question simply is this you know if you could go back in time, to when you were a chief resident or perhaps an early attending knowing what you know now what is the one piece of advice that you give yourself
2: yeah it's a great question i think um you know we get so busy uh in the day in and day out of of rounding and, and examining patients and developing operative plans and I think one thing that I've come to really appreciate, uh, especially as someone who deals with patients who uh, are sick, uh, dying, uh, really, if I could go back, I think I would just take a little bit more time to spend that little extra minute or two at my patient's bedside, really getting to know who they are. Now, what I love most about my job is getting to know the people that I'm operating on. Um, you know, my patients. And I think that that relationship, for me means everything. Um, you look at all my patients here, uh, they've all got my cell phone. Amazingly, they never actually call or text me. <laughs> you know, I'll get calls or dings uh, over the holidays. And, um, you know, have a number of patients who stay in touch uh, via email, send YouTube videos over the holidays. But uh, for me, that's what medicine and being a surgeon is all about it's those relationships that you you develop with your patients and i think as surgeons we have a certain level of uh, intimacy with our patients that you just don't get uh, unless you're actually operating on people and so yeah i think um, if i was talking to my younger self it would be just to take that little bit of extra time to get to know your patients i think that relationship that rapport can have a huge impact in terms of patient outcomes, their outlooks, and, um, yeah, really makes this job worth doing what we do.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes we love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at Search. Thanks again.